0: You're listening to NapperBroadcasting.com. Welcome back to the program. Robert Louis Stevenson called wine bottled poetry. Certainly the romance, history, and mystique of wine both gives it its special place, but also sometimes distracts from its simple, understated enjoyment. But how to achieve both? How to garner the knowledge to appreciate both the history and the mystique, but at the same time enjoy the simple pleasures? That's what my guest Marnie Old has tried to accomplish in her new book, Wine, a Tasting Course. Marnie Old is a nationally renowned sommelier, author, and wine educator. She's a featured speaker at the annual Food and Wine Classic in Aspen and formerly served as Director of Wine Studies for Manhattan's French Culinary Institute. It is my pleasure to welcome Marnie Old here to talk about Wine, a Tasting Course. Marnie, thanks so much for joining us. Well, oh, thanks for inviting me, Jeff. I'm thrilled to be here. Delighted to have you here. Talk about this balance, first of all, this idea of both maintaining the history, the mystique, the special quality that wine has in our imagination, and at the same time making it something that people can enjoy in a practical sense. Well, I don't think that there's any way
1: to remove the mystique from wine. It's, it's inherent history. The fact that it is so incredibly complex at the advanced level will always be there. I think that our challenge, though, is that the temptation for those of us who deal with beginners is to introduce too much complexity too early. Um, I am lucky in that I come from a family of educators. Uh, My mother studied to teach kindergarten. My father was a geography professor. And so between the two, I really absorbed the lessons of how to teach, how to explain things. And when I came to learning wine, I I have to tell you, I was a, a young waitress in restaurants trying to learn more about wine to improve my tips and to further my career. And I just found it a little bizarre that, people trying to learn about wine are kind of dropped in the deep end of the pool without many, without the help of any kind of beginner introduction to the concepts involved. And so when I got to the point where I was a sommelier in restaurants and was dealing with wine much more intensively and having to train my own staff, I approached it a little differently. I took what I call the Sesame Street approach, which is to start with a few key concepts, things that make sense, things that are... Uh, familiar to people from their experience with either cooking or gardening or you know history or art or music, to try and take analogies from things that people have more experience with, apply them to wine, and give them a sense of context first, to give them a sense of how the wine world works first, to tell them what the words we use to describe wine mean first, before we introduce them to long lists of data to memorize, like the names of grapes or the names of appellations around the world.
0: How much of that teaching the, the old way, the way you were talking about initially, comes from a fear that somehow if you don't teach it the the traditional way, it will lose some of that mystique?
1: Well, I think that part of that, if, if you think about the way wine education has worked traditionally, in this country, the wine experts for many generations were from France or from Italy. They were coming over here working as sommeliers, certainly on the East Coast. That was what we experienced out here, was that we were being taught about wine by folks who had learned wine inherently. When you, when you speak to Europeans, you don't have to explain things about how fruits and vegetables ripen. But with Americans, you do kind of have to explain it. It's not that they're stupid. It's that we don't have the same kind of food culture here in the United States. We don't have the same kind of wine culture here in the United States that they have at home. So there's much of the beginner level education that they're omitting, not because they are aware they're doing it, but because they absorbed it so early that they never had to have that explained to them. When they signed up for wine classes in France or Italy, it started with grapes and regions because there was a certain level of common understanding. Now, when you're teaching in the US, we do have to go back a little further. We have to explain some basics. For example, the ripening process, the idea of the connection between the amount of sun and warmth that grapes get in the vineyard and the development of flavor and sugar in the grapes and how sugar is translated into alcohol content during the fermentation process. Those key concepts end up never really being explained as well as they should be, in part I think because so much wine education is or even wine communication in general, is oriented around the sales of a particular brand or a particular style. So what tends to happen is that for most Americans, their early encounters with someone explaining wine to them happen in a retail store or they happen in a winery tasting room or they happen in perhaps a class, but maybe it's a sponsored class or a wine dinner in a restaurant. And so they're being pitched a particular bottle And the learning happens along the way. When that's happening, of course we're going to focus on the grape. Of course we're going to focus on the appellation. But that's not necessarily information that that consumer is really ready to internalize and interpret just yet. I really feel that there's a sort of missing link in the wine education chain here in the United States. So we need to start where the rubber meets the road. We need to introduce people to the practical skills of shopping and pairing and tasting and assigning words to describe the sensory characteristics of wine in a simpler way than what they encounter in wine magazines and and often in wine tastings. We're focusing on descriptive language at the expert level when what people really need is the entry level. Um, I don't think that there's that much danger of of shortchanging wine, though. I really don't, because in any field, in it, whether we're talking about music or fashion or art or food, there's always going to be a small subset of the general public that has the natural inclination to want to know more, to want to learn more, to take it further, and that subset is in every wine class that I teach. That that segment of the population is more heavily represented in people that sign up for wine learning, who uh, get wine magazines, the people who read wine books, and so on. So you end up with a mix that's about half and half, general public, and what I think of as the geekhood, the people who are naturally inclined to want to understand this stuff more. If you present that kind of entry-level education to a group like that, what happens is you're engaging the geekhood side of the room and getting them to want to understand more. They're going to be insatiable. They're going to want the next step. They're going to want to understand why, just not what and how, whereas the general public might be more happy at stopping after that entry-level education. I still think it's the right thing to do. Even if the geekhood needs to take the next class, needs to go to the advanced level to satisfy their curiosity, I worry about teaching in a way that leaves the general public behind. I worry about it for them in the sense that I see way too many people telling me that their wine education experiences, their visits to tasting rooms, just go right over their head and leave them tongue-tied and confused. Um, I, I worry about leaving the general public behind, but I also feel like the geekhood Move on to the advanced level with a much better understanding of how things work and progress faster if they learn the general concepts first. I remember myself, you know, when I was a, in the restaurant trade, I moved ahead very quickly. I learned a little about wine. I, t- I took Kevin's Raley's course in mm-hmm. wine, and I ended up being the sommelier at a very small fancy restaurant at a very young and inexperienced age. I think I was twenty-six when I started, and. At that stage, I had a, quite a lot of what we think of as wine knowledge. You know that wine expertise. I had been buying wine. I had been selling wine. I, I had some of those skills. I had some deep insecurity about my wine knowledge, but I certainly had more than the average customer in my restaurant. And this was a fancy fine dining place. But I still remember so vividly the first trip that I made to a winery in wine country, and. They walked me into the winery building, and they were showing me that it was right after harvest, so we had both white and red wines fermenting at the same time. And a light bulb went off in my head. I had never truly understood the distinction between white and red wines properly before that moment. I mean, it had never actually been broken down and explained that, The white wines were being fermented long, slow, cold, refrigerated in a way that was designed to preserve the freshness of the taste of the grape at that moment of harvest. Um, Whereas the red wines needed to ferment at a higher temperature. It needed to be faster and more violent, more turbulent, because there was a destructive process involved. The reds not only had the skins in the tank, but they needed to be warmer to pull out, to extract the flavor compounds and the color compounds from those skins into the liquid required heat. It's kind of like taking the same pile of ingredients. Okay, If you take tomatoes and onions and peppers and chop them up, you can just mix them in a bowl and put them in the fridge and let them marry those fresh flavors and make a Or you can take the same ingredients, throw them in a pot and simmer them and have them break down and cook on the stove, and you get two very, very different results in the flavor. The gazpacho will taste vividly of the garden. You'll be able to taste fresh tomato, fresh onion, fresh pepper. It's all right there, vividly. Whereas those flavors break down, they merge, they change, and in some ways there's the presence of new flavors that weren't present in the raw materials when you simmer those ingredients to make a pasta sauce. And that distinction between white and red wine is one that I had never heard explained, one that had never come up in the wine classes I had taken. It was something that went beyond the idea of skins or no skins. It went beyond the idea of green grapes or red grapes in a very key concept kind of way and made so much sense. I wish we spent more time on those general concepts when we explain wine to people rather than diving right into the deep end, dropping them in the deep (laughs) end of the pool. We take consumers and we we introduce them to appellations. We introduce them to grape varieties. We introduce them to clones. We talk about this type of oak, that type of oak, how many months in barrels long before they're actually ready to make any sense of that information.
0: Has there been, besides the division between the geeks and the non-geeks, has there been a gender bias in some ways? Has it helped people's understanding the fact that there are more and more women in so many different aspects of the wine business?
1: Well, I certainly have observed in my time in the trade that there is a difference in... Among wine consumers, now obviously this doesn't apply to every individual, but if you look at them as a whole, there tends to be two different ways, two different dominant styles of thinking about wine. When I talk to the male wine enthusiast, when I talk to the guys who have wine cellars and collect wines, the guys who grab the wine list in the restaurant and want to make a decision for the table and really want to talk to the sommelier because they're curious about the offerings, when I talk to those guys, they tend to have what I think of as the collectors or the hoarder's mindset. They tend to be thinking in terms of stats, almost like, you know, their fantasy football league. You know, <laughs> they, they want to know, you know, the the performance, the past track record. They they want to know how many months in barrels something spent. They want to know how many points it scored. There's a kind of number-centric mindset that um, also seems to be a little bit more focused on status, on... Um, comparing the performance of different wines, um, of comparing quality, sometimes factoring in value, sometimes not, depending on how much a dollar means to that individual consumer. Um, And it's it's just a way of thinking that is not as widely shared on the female side of the consuming public. When I talk to women about wine, they're much more focused on the sensory side. They are certainly cognizant of quality. They recognize it. They know what they're paying for or what they get when they pay more for wine. And they know that it's, in some occasions it's worthwhile to splurge a little bit more for quality and in some occasions it's not. But honestly, when women are shopping for wine, and again, this is a huge sweeping generalization, mm-hmm. they tend to think of it more the way, um, you know, they think of it more as a food. They treat it more like, you know, choosing a salad dressing. You know, is it appropriate for the occasion? Is it summer? Is it winter? Um, What else am I making for dinner? Who's coming over? How important is this occasion? Those kinds of questions come up a lot more with women than they do with men. And I find that the women really care less about the status questions. They also are often tending to spend a lot less time thinking about those, um, Numbers, the stats, the, the fantasy football stats of the wine mm-hmm. seem to mean less to those consumers. They're much more concerned about the the sensory, about the social, about the the in-the-moment enjoyment factors, and spend less time thinking about the structural background and the sort of Picking of boxes that I see happening with the guys.
0: One of the other things that that you've certainly brought to it in your your columns and and in your writing about it is a sense of humor, that that so many of the people that, that talk about wine, write about wine, want to be clear that they understand it, take themselves a touch too seriously, perhaps.
1: Well, and this is so unfortunate. I mean, let's think about this for a moment. If we're getting to the point where... Wine, something that helps us relax, something that helps us enjoy ourselves. If we're getting to the point where it's stiff and perceived as uptight, we really have something desperately backwards. And we're actually now, I, I when I look around in the U.S., and I'm I'm certain that this is partly because we're a culture here that didn't um, necessarily. Most Americans didn't have wine at the table with dinner growing up. It was it was a special occasion beverage. We've actually come to the point where wine is a social status indicator. And what that means is that there's a lot more stress involved in making wine decisions than really should be necessary at all. I worry that we end up turning off a certain audience when we have these sort of social yardstick questions attached to wine decisions, when people feel like there are right and wrong choices in the wine section of the store or on the wine list in a restaurant. And I also feel that we are in a different period now. I mean, wine historically has always been the highest possible expression of the fermented beverage family. I mean, if you think about it, looking back to, you know, for millennia, we've been fermenting beverages, making alcoholic drinks out of anything with starch or sugar since the beginning of civilization. But if you were of that group that appreciates flavor and gastronomy, if you were somebody who could afford to drink a little better, almost anywhere you lived in the world, anywhere in history, wine was the product that you would upgrade to. Now, when we look at the changes that took place in the 20th century, we have some radical differences now in the beverage landscape than what we used to have. And there are competing fermented beverages. There are competing distilled beverages. We are now in a situation where wine can't be content for customers to come to us. It used to be that no matter what you started drinking in your 20s, when you were in college, you could be a beer drinker. Maybe you were drinking... Uh, sangria, maybe you were drinking cocktails, maybe you were drinking Long Island iced tea, Lord knows, but eventually if you were the kind of person who noticed differences, you know, the, there's that foodie person who notices improvements in quality, who notices flavor, who's attuned to those things, eventually you would come to wine. It would be introduced to you in social occasions, dining out, it would be introduced to you in the retail stores. But now, if you start out as a beer drinker, there are higher expressions of beer available now than ever before. Not just the classic Trappist Belgian imports. I'm also talking about the craft beer universe that sprung up here in the United States. There is better beer available in the U.S. than anywhere in the world at this point. And if you are intimidated by wine, if wine comes off as stuffy, stiff, or not enough fun to you on your first impact, well then why leave the beer world? Why not stay with the stuff you know, the stuff that's in your comfort zone? And this is my concern is that if we do not make wine feel like fun, if it's not entertaining, if it's not enjoyable, if it feels like homework, if it feels stressful or, you know, uncomfortable, if people feel overwhelmed, then it's easy to opt out of wine. And, you know, everybody has to start somewhere. We all started with something else. It could have been White Zinfandel. It could have been Matus. It could have been Bully Hill. But we can't stigmatize the entry-level wines. We cannot make wine too serious. If we want the wine industry to survive, if we want to have a future, we have to embrace the fun. We have to remember to enjoy life in the now.
0: Marnie Old, her book is Wine, a Tasting Course. Marnie, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Of course, I'm thrilled to be here, Jeff. And of course, your audience in wine country, I'm sure, has heard many of these things before. But the challenge is communicating them. And that's why this book is full of pictures. It's not overly wordy. It's all infographic.
0: And as you said, making it fun.
1: Yes, that's the most important goal.
0: Marnie Old, A taste, Wine, a Tasting Course. I thank you so much. Wine food
1: talk. Napper